Episode 43, Why We Must Change. There's really only two possible explanations. Either this is the reality that is, the reality that we see as human beings in our planet, in our lives, in our existence. Or, as the Urantia book, The Revelation, explains, there is a greater reality in which we exist. So we don't exist unto ourselves, but we are rather part of a much greater and larger reality that has much greater and eternal meanings and values. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we are living in a bubble. If the Urantia book proves right, and every indication is, is that it is a true revelation, then we're left with a, a choice that we have to make, which is, do we continue living in this matrix-like make-believe life that is our life on planet Earth, or do we assume the responsibility of being ambassadors of a much larger and living kingdom? Look, there is no contingency that says we are supposed to be left in the dark about our eternal existence. But that, what that means is that it is not a prerequisite to faith to not know that there is an afterlife. God wants us to know there's an afterlife. God has continually sent prophets and sons of God and, and, and angels to tell us that there is life beyond the flesh. But we don't live in that world. We live in the flesh world. We live in the mortal world, the earth world, the world that we've created for ourselves. The difference between most religions and the Urantia book is that in most religions, God is in the center of your life. In the Urantia book, we are at the center of his life. This is his universe. This is his creation. We're working for the eventual expression of the supreme, the fulfillment of the ages, the jubilee. We are working on behalf of God. We are in his world. We are in his existence. We are part of his creation. And so we must act accordingly. And so part of acting accordingly is acknowledging that we are in his creation. And his creation is comprised of billions and billions of worlds just like ours that spawn evolutionary life. And we have a moral and ethical responsibility to progress as the human species. We're the only species on this planet that has will and understands moral value and ethical meaning. And that's supposed to mean something. That sets us apart from every other uh, animal on this planet. And yet we persist in acting like animals of this planet, kings of our own domain. And I would just say this. They've given us a million years to go from being a beast to being enlightened. We're already over a million years. If you were to ask me why, why, why did they give us the Arantia book, you know what I would say? I would say they gave us the Arantia book because they have no other alternative. They've tried everything else. They've thrown everything but the kitchen sink at us. They threw Caligastia at us. They threw Adam and Eve at us. They threw Melchizedek at us. They threw Jesus at us. Here, we'll let you have the Son of God, the bestowal Son, the Creator's Son. He's going to come and tell you that there's life after death and that there is a kingdom of God and you are a part of it and you should accept your sonship or daughtership and go forth. I mean, they keep trying to give us the message and finally the Urantia book shows up and in the very beginning it says, the time has come to be frank about reality. And the true reality is your world is part of a, a much larger existence and your lives have much more meaning than you can ever understand and comprehend and appreciate. And you need to embrace this, put some skin in the game and get show up for work, you know. 
We need to take responsibility for the fact that we are spiritual beings and that we have a spiritual purpose and that in our life, intellectual and spiritual growth is the only thing that matters. Not collection of wealth. I mean, that's great. I mean, we all like to live comfortably and we all like to have our nice homes and our nice cars. But at the end of the day, that's not the purpose of living. And what happens is we get caught up in that and we forget that we should be spending time out of the day contemplating wisdom, contemplating intellectual growth, contemplating meanings and values and relationships that we have with people around us, contemplating what love really means and patience and persistence and cooperation with other people. And so, yeah, yeah, they've given us a long time, but it's time. It's time for humanity to understand our lives are, are part of a much larger picture, and we need to embrace that. Because it's it's the only way we're going to get from here to there. Without it, without a true spiritual path, we're doomed. Uh, We'll end up in a few pockets. Maybe civilization will crumble. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe we'll slip into sort of a socialist, communist society moving forward for hundreds of years. I've always said that secularism is the, uh, the Trojan horse of a later spiritual age. You know, it almost happened in China. I mean, Falun Gong had 100 million followers uh, up to 1999. I mean, China was starving for religion. Religion is against the law in China. Pretty soon it's going to be against the law anywhere. It'll be considered hate speech. So there's your your lesson for today, episode 43. We'll see you next time here on Your Rancher Radio, the only podcast about a revelation. Watkins, come on in. The global podcast dedicated to sharing and discussing the latest revelation of new truth. This time up, we are going to talk to an author and pastor who has written five books, which calls to light the inconsistency of the atonement doctrine taught from Christianity and scripture. How central is the atonement doctrine to Christian teachings? Some say it is a bedrock principle My guest disagrees and spent decades trying to show other people, including many religious leaders, why the mixed message of the atonement doctrine can actually undermine many people's willingness to embrace many of Jesus' teachings, and he discusses why he believes so. This time up on the Rancher Radio Podcast. Stephen Finland has a PhD in Pauline theology from University of Durham in the UK and taught theology for 14 years at Fordham, Drew, and other universities, 
uh, nine books in his files, including the highly acclaimed Problems with Atonement back in 2005, and also the author of Bullying in the Churches from 2015, The Family Metaphor in Jesus' Teachings from 2013, and the co-editor of the groundbreaking Theosis Deification in Christian Theology in 2006, also the pastor of the First Church, the United Church of Christ, in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts. And it's an honor for me to have Stephen Finland on. Dr. Finland, uh, how are you? And, and, and good morning. I'm good, and uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Me too, and uh, we're going to be talking specifically about your latest book, which is entitled Salvation Not Purchased. And it's the key tenets of salvation not purchased that uh, we talk about the very uh, interesting issue and controversial issue of atonement. When we talk about atonement in connection with religious thinking, it tends to be tied closer to uh, both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, atonement is linked with the sacrificial ritual system. And in the New Testament, atonement is uh, the term that we use in English for uh, ideas about Jesus dying for our sins and uh, ideas coming from mostly the epistles of the New Testament that talk about uh, him dying for our sins. And, And so that atonement tends to refer to that. And we got this from actually, uh, what, Hebrew, the Hebrew uh, traditions of the original sin? Is that where the atonement doctrine and the need for well comes from? No, that, that original sin idea mostly comes from uh, Romans 5. It comes from Paul. Um, it, it, you don't really have an original sin idea in, in Hebrew religion. Uh, there's an impurity concept. And, uh, and atonement in the Old Testament is closely linked with purification. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's a whole separate discussion. I get into that in the middle of the book, because um, in, in the book I've just written, Salvation Not Purchased, Overcoming the Ransom Idea to Rediscover the Original Gospel Teaching, I start out by really making an argument about uh, atonement uh, blood atonement ideas being inconsistent with Jesus's own teaching. So I make an emphasis on Jesus's own teaching in the, in the early pages of the book. Then I, I have to get into why did atonement develop at all. And so then I look into uh, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament and the me- sacrificial metaphors that occur in the New Testament. So they're metaphorical in the New Testament because, of course, Jesus is not uh, or no human being is an appropriate sacrificial victim, so it, it is an, a metaphor when uh, when someone says that Jesus died as a sacrifice, which only occurs a few times actually in the New Testament. But um, but the image is is um, it, it occurs quite a few times in the letter to the Hebrews, which is an anonymous letter. And it occurs a few times in key passages in, in the Apostle Paul. So we tend to look at Paul as the architect of the atonement uh, theology in the New Testament, including the original sin idea, where Adam Adam uh, sinned and therefore brought death into the human race. 
Why? Uh, why was he, or what was his purpose in doing that? Did he himself have perhaps a, a guilty conscience because he, if I know my limited history of Paul, he grew up uh, uh, kind of like what you might consider today to be a pretty liberal. He, he, you know, he had parents. He went to. He was well educated. Um, he could travel because he was a. I think at one point he was a citizen of three different uh, regimes, so he wasn't restricted. He was serving the Roman, you know, legion. Uh, was it the Roman legion? He was a Roman guard, was he not? No, no, he was he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizen. Uh, yeah, he and spoke so he Greek Roman or something. Yeah, tell me a little bit about and, Paul. What was the reason for him and his, uh, you know, insistence on having the atonement doctrine so central to Christian theology? Well. This may be crude, but I'm going to say uh, Christians were handed a lemon, and they made lemonade out of it, the lemon being the scandal of the crucifixion. And the lemonade was the interpretation of the crucifixion by by Paul and apparently the people who taught Paul, uh, because he says he's handing on what was taught to him, although we don't have any earlier authors who said this, but he, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and that's where it says Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. But he says, Paul says, I'm handing on what was taught to me. So we think he got that idea from Christian Jews in Antioch, which already had a strong martyrological concept, that is the concept of the saving value of martyrs. In Antioch, there was a story of Jewish martyrs who gave their lives in fighting against the uh, Seleucid Empire. These are the Maccabean martyrs. And so there was an annual festival that uh, celebrated the heroic deaths of the Maccabean martyrs, which uh, caused God to not punish the whole nation. Um, And so that concept may be the root concept that was then taken by Paul and applied in a you know more thoroughgoing way to the death of Jesus, making the death of Jesus a saving event. Uh, it's, it's interesting when you tell me this story about how one little sliver of someone else's belief system sort of got into the pool of the beginnings of the early Christian teachings. And in in a sense, it contaminated it, didn't it? Yeah, you could say that. It, it became a persuasive message, um, or it, it in hindsight, it looks like it must have been persuasive because those writings were per- preserved by the Church. Uh, which kind of goes back. Which kind of goes back to my original point, which is man's intrinsic desire to seek redemption. Um, you know, because how else can you reconcile these? these people that you love who died, the Maccabeans, as you say, you know, they're going and they're fighting a cause. And even today we see, for example, I don't want to use it. It's a coincidence, but George Floyd being held up as a martyr, Michael Brown, some of the Iranian uh, soldier, um, Soleiman, who was killed last year by the United States, uh, a revolutionary guard for Iran. He was held up as a martyr. So we can kind of see that this, but uh, you never would have thought that it was that kind of thinking that infiltrated the pool of early Christian thought. 
Yeah, I did. Uh, the examples you gave have, have a lot of political implications, and uh, we do see a lot of political implications to monarology uh, today, and we've always seen that. In the case of the martyrology surrounding Jesus, it, it's uh, more theological, you might say, but becomes political over time. Um, well, how did, so tell instance, us what was life like uh, with your with your extensive knowledge. T- take us back to the first years after Jesus had been crucified. What was it like then? If you could t- take us into the mind of these people, because all obviously they were distraught. Their master had been killed. The Sadducees, yeah. the Sanhedrin, thought that their job was done. But then there was a continuance, and the, and it didn't go away. So, what? Yeah. Tell us what the mindset well, might have been. Uh, you have a strong belief in Jesus as Messiah. I think the Acts of the Apostles, you know, the fifth book in the New Testament. Uh, actually gives a pretty accurate version of what the early Christian teaching was before Paul. Uh, After the the death and resurrection of Jesus and before Paul's conversion, you have Peter and others preaching about Jesus and saying, this was the Messiah and you guys killed him, but he came to bring forgiveness and also the Spirit. And they say all those things, but they don't say anything about he died for your sins. There's actually no atonement teaching given in the early chapters of Acts. Uh, And I I think that's probably accurate, that that they definitely emphasized that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, and that he brought forgiveness of sins and he brought spiritual truth uh, and salvation. Then in the 50s AD, along comes Paul uh, writing letters. that we now have, which have the atonement teaching in there that he died for our sins and that, uh, it was, you know, he was, you are bought and paid for, it says, uh, in two places in first Corinthians. In other words, the death as a ransom payment. Uh, and that's one of the ideas that I debunk in, in my book. I, I seek to show that it's inconsistent with Jesus's own teaching. Well, you As mentioned we find it in, in four gospels. You mentioned that this is your fifth book uh, on this subject, and I've been dying to ask you ever since. Uh, something's driving you to really want to hone in on this. Why is it important to you? I think there are psychological problems and spiritual problems that emerge from uh, uh, the popular concepts of atonement. Um, you know, it, it's an idea that God was paid off by Jesus' death, and that that says good things about Jesus, but bad things about God the Father. And and uh, I think that's bad theology, and it ends up being bad psychology, because it assumes a harsh and judgmental God who required punishment, but was happy to allow an innocent person to step in and take the punishment. And this theology, which is only partially present in Paul, is developed mostly by by subsequent people like Augustine and later on Martin Luther and Jean Calvin, is a harmful theology because it it uh, it involves a violent God, and uh, and and posits a big separation in nature between God the Father and God the Son, 
Whereas if you read Jesus's own words, he, sh- he speaks of a very close similarity between God the Father and, and God the Son. Uh, very, you know, they both have the same generous love. For instance, the parable of the prodigal son is an example of a father who is excessively generous, um, surprisingly generous and forgiving to his bad son who turns around and returns home. And uh, the son has prepared a, a speech, you know, I am not worthy and I have sinned. And, and the father doesn't even need to hear the speech. He's just so happy to see the son. He welcomes him back and declares a celebration and everything. And so the message is the father is, is abundantly forgiving and open to our return to him. And so this is the idea of a generous and kind father, not a judgmental father who requires payment for sin. You know, even an abusive father, really. I mean, because you're right, it's inconsistent. Yeah. On the one hand, Jesus, for the first time, is introducing, uh, you know, what had been previously been considered a judgmental, tyrannical ruler who expects, you know, slavish uh loyalty uh, you know unquestioned loyalty and then here he comes and says no uh, think of love god is love the father is is the source of all love uh and that's kind of what made him different true yeah yeah i think so the emphasis on love is remarkable and uh even if you compare jesus with the founders of other religions the one person who's who's known for speaking about love and demonstrating love is Jesus. It's uh, it's the characteristic feature, you know, all the way down to his uh, kindness to children and his uh, his well-known openness to children. Uh, So, yeah, that's, that's the remarkable feature about Jesus. What Paul did is he blended uh, Jesus's teachings with uh, this old-style uh, redemption teaching and came up with a blend that uh, I guess you could say was pretty effective for, for a time, but now really looks awkward, the idea of God as demanding judge and loving Father at the same time is, is becoming less and less convincing. What is the meaning of the cross? Well, one thing is is that Jesus was determined to live through a human life all the way to the end without using his miraculous power to rescue himself. Uh, He did perform miracles, but they were always for other people. Um, He did not perform any miracle to rescue himself from the doom that was planned for him by his enemies, his human enemies. so it shows uh, determination to live a human life all the way through. It also shows the mercy of Jesus when you look at the things he said while on the cross, uh, including, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A huge generosity of heart that, that is very consistent with what we see in Jesus throughout his whole life and ministry. So we see the generosity and, and forgivingness of God as manifested by Jesus. We see his love being acted out even when they were killing him. But I don't believe it was a necessary step 
uh, he did seem to have a way to protect his apostles. He seemed to take the hit and buy some time for his apostles. Uh, so in a way, you could say he died for his apostles to buy some time for them. Uh, because the, the Sadducees assumed they had, you know, stunted the movement by killing its leader. Um, but the, uh, the mercy of God uh, definitely comes through in, in the whole story, including the crucifixion. It is a bit of a stain, uh, and it does kind of represent, in my opinion, a side of humanity that a lot of people don't want to realize we're, we're pretty, we can be pretty evil uh, because yeah. here was this man who, who was teaching nothing but good. And, and in fact, I this wonderful passage from your, your book, if you don't mind me just sharing it. Sure. Uh, uh, this is uh, on the, on the subject of the conspiracy and the response you say, Jesus truly did suffer. He endured the heartbreak of seeing these people harden their hearts, and he, he knew they were going to kill him. But he did not have to be murdered. That is, God did not intend it. And several of Jesus' parables show that. In the parable of the tenant farmers, we always seem to miss one key line near the beginning. The vineyard owner sends his servants to the tenant's farmers and then sends his son in order to collect from them his share of the produce of the vineyard, Mark twelve twelve. In the new, uh, the new, what is it? The New England version? No, NIV. Um, uh, new, new international version. Okay, there you go. So, um, he, um, this is to quote collect from them some of the fruit. The vineyard owner just wants some fruit. He is not sending his son to be killed which would be a strange thing for a father to do. Rather, he expected the son to be respected. The owner is horrified when his son is killed. He wants only growth in the vineyard, not violence, and certainly not a sacrificial murder. Uh, and so it's, it's a great quote, but it, it really, again, we weren't ready then. And one wonders, are we ready yeah. now? I mean, you know, yeah. if, if we've gotten worse not better. In in many ways, we've we've only honed our ability to be evil to one another, and one wonders, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, the ramifications of, of 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 sending this divine bestowed son of God. He comes down. He lives with us. He learns our experiences, and then he's he's trying to change their hearts and open their hearts and free them from being oppressed from their own bad thoughts. Those are your writings. And then what do we do? We can't handle that much truth. It's blinding. It's frightening. What's the misunderstanding? I guess it's such a big idea that it's hard for people to be neutral about it. Uh, and people often feel threatened by God and the teaching about God, that God wants something from us. And and then they listen to what a certain religious group says, and they, they feel, I can't, I can't go along with that. I'm going to have to resist this with all my heart. And they resist the whole message instead of uh, just resisting one version that they're hearing. It is possible to resist, and I'm resisting, certain religious teachings uh, without resisting God. Uh, so it's necessary to take this subject seriously and to investigate and study it and learn about it and think, of, think about it for yourself. A lot of people don't think for themselves, or they think very shallowly. They react rather than thinking. There's a tendency among atheists to just react against uh, anything 
spiritual. Do you get people pulling you aside saying, hey, you know, you may want to get off this subject? Oh, yeah, I have some opponents uh, and a couple who have written book reviews of previous books that uh, were very offended by some of the things I said. So, yeah, I, I have some enemies, although a lot of them ignore me more than anything else. You figure uh, you'll get over it. some of them <laughs> take issue. Some of them take issue, yeah. Yeah, well, five books in, I don't think you're going to be getting over it anytime soon, so they they can't ignore you forever. Um, do you yeah, think that if, if we could fix this atonement doctrine issue, this dysfunction within the, the, the Christian teachings, do you think it would open the door for more people to come in? I think so. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the strange idea of, you know, a, a death buying our, our salvation turns off a lot of people. Um, and I do think that uh, the way that Christianity has talked about it has led to a lot of anti-Semitism. Uh, a certain revulsion with atonement is what underlie uh, unconscious revulsion with atonement. It's what underlies a lot of Christian anti-Semitism. Uh, but they can't, they don't know how to critique Christian doctrine. And so it's easier to lash out at the Jews and, uh, and be suspicious and frightened of the Jews. And we see this, especially in the middle ages when there was a series of strange, uh, paranoid accusations against the Jews kidnapping Christian Eucharists and stabbing the Eucharist until it bleeds and then using the blood in a ritual when in fact uh, the ritual that involved blood or at least symbolic blood was the Christian ritual. So I have a, a large section in the middle of the book about uh, medieval anti-Semitism and how atonement underlies, uh, I, in my opinion, the uh, emotional force of, of that kind of anti-Semitism. And so if we were able to get over the idea of salvation through blood, it would tend to remove some of the problems that exist between Christians and Jews. Why you do know, you think there's so much uh, anti-Christian activity going on around the world? I read some statistic that said that on average two to three Christians are being executed every single day simply be, and it's horrible in in yeah. areas of nigeria and and you hear about all all of it all the every single day yeah. what's behind well that? there's there's lots of um insecurity around the world around identity and so you have you also it's not always just christians you also have a severe conflict between hindus and muslims and a severe conflict between shiite Muslims and Sunni Muslims, but yes, Christians become a target in a lot of these countries um, where people are are paranoid about their identity and they feel their identity threatened by Christians. Uh, and so you get lots of oppression. And then you also have, of course, the communist ideology still uh, anti-religious. Uh, so in places like China, uh, the oppression of Christians is is a product of, of Marxist atheism. Very severe under the Soviet Union, of course. Um, I consider atonement actually a secondary issue in, in Christian thought. Uh, 
really the incarnation I consider more central to Christian thought, the idea that the divine became human. Then a secondary issue is, oh, that human being died, was killed. And this interpretation comes along that says, you know, that gives reasons for the killing. But I consider that actually not the essential uh, heart of Christian teaching. But it's there. And yeah, I, I, probably there's a lot of atonement thinking among Chinese Christians. But you know, a lot of people, a lot of churches that have traditional theologies don't emphasize atonement as much as others do. The Methodist Church and, and their doctrine traditionally accepts atonement. But if you read, uh, for instance, the Church Covenant and other documents, they don't even mention atonement. So it's just become, uh, it's, it's, it's a doctrine that is sort of, if it were left to natural development of things, would, would tend to fade away. But you have other people who strenuously advocate atonement teachings and push them very hard, the more fundamentalist groups. It's almost a litmus test price of admission. Yeah. You know, you have to believe this and accept these tenets in order to truly call yourself a Christian. Why do you think that people are, or is it true in your position, do you buy into this notion that people are becoming less religious? Um, Not necessarily, no. Uh, I think they're becoming less superstitious. As science advances, people gradually become less superstitious. Um, but, uh, of course, there's a backlash. You always find a backlash whenever you have some progress. There's always the people who are resisting progress. But being less superstitious doesn't necessarily mean being less religious. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I think, uh, I think there's still a lot of religious instincts in the human race and needs, spiritual needs. A lot of people don't know how to go about uh, meeting those needs. No, they really don't because unless they, um, you know, I I speak from knowing a lot of people in my life that are not religious, not present company excluded. Uh, And it's frustrating for me because when you know the, the benefits of the the philosophy of of spiritual ideas and truths, it alleviates a lot of stress in your life. You, you're more at home in the universe, right? I and, think so. And also, it, it's getting so bad. I imagine more people are probably going to church than than usual. Or, of course, they're not going to church anymore. They're doing Zoom meetings. Um, yeah. You know, has that has the how has coronavirus affected you? Well, our church is lucky. We were loaned a radio transmitter, so we actually go to the parking lot. Most church members stay in the parking lot, and they hear the service broadcast. We have a group of five of us that are inside the church, uh, so we have some distance among the five of us, and we conduct the service, and they listen to it on the radio. So that's pretty a good arrangement as long as we can keep doing that because people can see each other and wear masks outdoors there. They, they can get out of the car too and listen to it on a speaker on the front steps. So, uh, but not gathering inside the church. So, uh, for those who, uh, who've been 
wonderful enough to download this podcast. We're uh, enjoying the company of Stephen Finlan, uh, F-I-N-L-A-N. He has written the book Salvation Not Purchased. It's brand new. It's his attempt to sort of clean up some of the false assumptions about um, uh, Christology, namely that uh, the atonement doctrine is incompatible with the idea of a loving father. Why was Jesus killed? In your, in your, based on your knowledge, uh, he who was, killed him? He, he, the uh, religious leaders in Judah felt threatened by him. He and his predecessor, John the Baptist, um, talked about approaching God directly. Both of them did, really, although Jesus' teachings are much more developed. But John, too, uh, talked about getting, you know, repenting from sin and turning your heart to God honestly. And they both were able to talk about that without any reference to the sacrificial ritual system or doing uh, honor to the priests. So the priests felt their business was threatened. And uh, then the Pharisees, who are not priests, they're laymen, but they felt threatened, I guess, because uh, here's a lone intellectual who didn't come from them and who can out-debate them. And so it's more a matter of envy on their part. But some of the Pharisees did follow Jesus. They were the ones who were more likely to listen to Jesus than were any of the priests. But the straight answer to your question is that uh, both the Sadducees and Pharisees in, in the Sanhedrin, the religious court, felt threatened by this guy who was an independent prophet. And... uh their resentment turned into bitterness, and their bitterness turned into a desire to, to frame and murder, get him killed. Only the Romans were allowed to practice the death penalty. That's why they handed him over to Pilate with some trumped-up charges to get Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, to uh, put him to death. There are so many similarities that you see in modern life. Things have not changed that much. Human nature does, yeah. has not seemed to have yeah. changed in 2,000 years, despite all of the things that we've invented. Right. <laughs> who do you want to read this book? They say when you write a book, you're writing it for somebody in mind. Who, who did you have uh, in mind? Uh, largely pastors and, and uh, thoughtful members of the churches. So uh, lay readers, uh, but definitely uh, I was trying to reach pastors with this book. Because a lot of pastors have some instincts that sh I share, but they don't know how to talk about atonement. They don't, they, they don't preach it, but they also don't know how to respond to it very well. And this would give them tools to be able to respond to it and talk about it and say why they don't believe in it. Well, we appreciate you, and um, and I can't wait. I want people listening to this podcast to send me an email and tell me how impressed you are by this gentleman, and I will forward those emails to Mr. Finland, and I hope that you will get the book. Is it on? Uh, I'm looking at your beautiful yeah. uh, book here. Um, is it also on Amazon? Can they download it? Oh, yeah. Okay. It's on, it's on Amazon. You can buy it as a Kindle book. It's actually cheapest if you go to the publisher's website, whipfandstock.com, W-I-P-F and stock, all one word, whipfandstock.com, and that's where it's cheapest. But mo a lot of people are used to using Amazon, and you can certainly get it there. All right, and the name of the book is Salvation Not Purchased, 
Author is Stephen Fenlon joining me this time up. Until next time, thank you again for joining me on this special podcast with our guest. Follow us online through iTunes, Google, and Spotify. Our podcast is updated once a week, or you can follow us online at urantiaradio.net. Until next time, I'm Jim Watkins. Mm -hmm.